Well, good morning, Restore. Happy spring break and daylight savings time. Uh, so actually, this is my least, one of my least favorite days of the whole year, um, which tells you I'm not a morning person. Uh, and what partly makes this day more annoying is I get to figure out which of you are morning people. Because you show up and you're like, oh good, I had an extra hour of productivity this morning. I loved it. And I'm like, I lost an hour of sleep. And I've been counting down since like yesterday. I've been like, it's not really 3 p.m., it's actually 4 p.m. And so like I've been prepping myself all morning uh, for daylight savings. So welcome, whether you were excited that today was more productive because you got an extra hour or not. Uh, my name's Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Restore. Uh, we're in the middle of a, of a new series, uh, where this is our second week. Um, we're exploring the book of Ruth. So the book of Ruth is, is an Old Testament book uh, that was written before the time of Jesus. So w- when you think of your, your Bible, you, you basically have two sections in it. You have an Old Testament section, and you have a New Testament section, and those are roughly divided uh, by the the birth of Jesus. Um, The coming of Jesus sort of separates these two sections in your Bible. But tucked back in uh, your Old Testament is a book called Ruth. And and, in most of your Old Testament, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, I just want to say, you're like, I want to say welcome, first off. Like, there are many of us that are unfamiliar with these sections of our Bible. Um, I'm going to do my best this morning to provide a little bit of context um, in the book. So what we're doing is we're going to be in a story about a single family. So when you read most of your Old Testament, it's a lot about kings and great battles and, like, prophets and all of these kind of great wars and nations rising up, right? Moses and the ten plagues. Like, you have all these kind of grand stories. But kind of tucked in the middle of your Bible is this story of Ruth. And it's a story of a single family. In particular, it is a story about a particular woman, so backdrop to the story uh, that I'm going to give us, what we're going to do this morning is I'm actually going to read the story. Like I'm not, because it, it, like, so many weeks, and I know uh, like we, we, we jump into a letter by Paul or we jump into some theology and I break it down, sometimes way too complex. I'm sorry for that. Like really, like I, I know like sometimes we dive deep into stuff, but if I do that for a story, if I start parsing it out and I'm like, well, this is what this word means and this is what this means, like I'll ruin it. Okay, that's like watching Netflix. Like, there, so my wife will not let me watch shows with her because I ruin them. Uh, because I provide commentary, she says. Uh, and so I don't want to ruin the story for you guys. Uh, so I'm not going to provide like, commentary in the middle of the story. But what I am going to do is try to set it up. And, and what I want to do uh, if, if for just a second is I want us to slow down. And I want to let the story speak for itself. I want to let Ruth and her character speak to us. Like with all stories, there's all kinds of uncertainty and hopelessness. Like there's a plot and we're not sure how it's going to work out. There's characters in the story And as they develop and grow uh, and interact with each other, I want to let them speak to us. Like, I want to let the story and the text actually speak to us. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the story up to provide a little bit of context. So the story itself was written uh, probably 3,000 years ago or more. 
right? Long time ago, 6,000 miles away from here in the ancient Near East. So you're, you're looking at a very different context, a very different culture, very different type of story. And yet my hope this morning is that as we read this story, as we look at who Ruth is, we will begin to see who God is through her. Okay, so, so the story, as I said, it starts out as a single family, uh, and so I'm going to put the first slide up here. here. Here's a little bit of the, the family tree. I apologize. I took genetics when I was in pre-med years and years ago. I kind of forgot. I, I did it with fruit flies, never with Bible characters. So I don't really remember how to do it. Um, but if you'll see on the screen behind me, this is about a story. And the story is going to set up with, with two, two uh, characters, the patriarch and the matriarch. That's Elimelech and Naomi. And in and, and Hebrew, right, in their culture, their names mean something. So most of us in, in English, modern kind of Western culture, like our names also mean something that you have had no idea what until like you Googled it with your friends them day. And you're like, my name means noble. And they're like, I, that doesn't match at all. Well, like, like, right, like your, your name was like something that kind of like meant something that was interesting on a Google search. But like beyond that, it didn't define anything for you. Their names very much define like their character, their personality, their essence, like who they are. And so part of how we understand them is also through their names. And so the story opens up with two characters. These are the patriarchs of the family. Elimelech, whose name literally means my God is king, and Naomi, whose name means pleasant. And so as the story sets up, you would expect Somebody whose name, my God is king, marries somebody who's basically, my life is pleasant. Like, I am pleasant. When they get together, you would expect this to be like a good story. Like, there, you would expect there to be good things. My God is king. He is in control of my life. But immediately, we actually begin to see something happen that's kind of unexpected. They have two children Malon and Killian, and their names mean sickly and frail. So, right, like, and you're like, wait, why? That was a terrible name choice for parents, right? But, like, again, the story is working its way uh, here. They're trying to tell us something. Wait, these two people who you would expect to, like, everything in their life should go exactly as, as like, you would anticipate someone who says, my God is king, Mary's pleasant. You would expect a trajectory and immediately begin to see the trajectory starts going a different direction with the story. And so Malon and Kilion, they marry uh, two people, Ruth and Orpah. These are two Moabite women. Okay, so um, I, I, like this is not a shameless marketing plug, um, but like if you get a chance, go back and listen to last week's sermon. Not because I'm like, it was so amazing and you got to like, like soak in my insight more, but like I, I provide more like context that I can't do every single Sunday, um, but it'll help as we go through Ruth over the next couple of weeks, as we dive into that to help understand a little, it'll help understand a little bit more of what's happening here. Um, but, but basically what happens, uh, we can go to that next slide uh, there, Carly, is that um, immediately, um, kind of as the story starts, Kilian and Malon die. Like, well, their names were sickly and feeble, right? Or sickly uh, and frail, would you expect? But also, Elimelech dies. My God is king. And all of a sudden, right, how I'm processing life, my God is king, God's in control, kind of fades out of the picture. And we're left with Ruth and Orpah 
and Naomi. And so what will happen in the story, uh, as I read it, right? So what I'm doing is I'm trying to set up context, but what will happen in the story uh, is Naomi will at some point change her name from pleasant to Mara, which means bitter. And, and so as we kind of read this, uh, like, it's easy for us to go, kind of like, oh, that's cute, like, name changes, that's nice. Like, but what I want us to do is step into Mara's story now, Naomi, now Mara, for just a second. When she says these words, don't call me pleasant anymore, call me bitter. I started out with my God is king, he's in control, and now I've come to this place, and I don't know what's happened. Don't associate goodness with me anymore. Don't associate pleasantness with me. Don't associate God's blessings or God's hand with me anymore. Call me bitter. And, and so I want to just pastorally, I want to stop us right here um, for just a second. So mo- most of us, uh, we tend to have an idea of like, if I follow God, like if I honor him, if I serve him, my life will at least go somewhat in the direction that I'd like it. It'll be somewhat agreeable. I might miss out on some of the kind of pain that I really don't want to face. Right? I, I, may have such, I may miss out on ever feeling like my life is truly out of my control. But what the, the book of Ruth is showing us here is that sometimes our Sunday school answers, my God is king, he's in control, start to challenge the way that we actually, that actually works out in our life. And sometimes these kind of simple, I'm not calling them, and by the way, I'm not calling any, saying any of this is untrue. This is a whole other sermon, but sometimes the things that we say, God's got me, or he's in control, or I know like all, everything happens for a reason, or he'll bring some goodness out of this. Some of these answers start to feel confusing for us. Some of the ways that we theologize and rationalize and philosophize, like the trajectory of our lives and the suffering around us, sometimes begin to become a little bit short and helping us cling to something. And that's precisely where Naomi is, Mara. Her life has taken a trajectory that she had not anticipated. My God is king, he's in control, is no longer in the picture. We read in the story, as I read it, as I'll read it this morning, that they start out in Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. But then we also read there's a famine. And so there's this some irony here. My God is king is dead. I live in a place called house of bread, but there is no bread. Don't call me Naomi. Don't think of me as blessed. Call me bitter. Also, pastorally, I want to stop us here for just a quick second. Um, I think sometimes we're afraid to enter into this space, um, particularly in the West. Right? We want to jump quickly to, we want to have the theological understanding of why this happened. Why did God allow this? Why has my life worked out this way? I've had this thing that I've begged God to take from me, or I've had this thing that I've begged God to give to me, and somehow like my, aunt, like my prayers hit the ceiling and they seem like they go no farther. 
And so we jump into Bible studies and we kind of try to compare ourselves to different characters or try to find some kind of verse and pull it out and say, well, there's always this plan. God loves me. And I'm, again, I'm not arguing for what is true or not true. Please don't hear me say what I'm not saying this morning. What I'm simply trying to do is get us to jump into the lives of these characters here. But then also to recognize that before Mara, Naomi, actually can find some real hope. She has to come to this place where she admits that my life is completely turned into a space that I didn't anticipate, nor do I want, nor do I praise God for, nor do I thank him for. In fact, all I can really do is say to him is, your hand must be against me. Why? There's this real honest sort of plea that she has. Pastorally, I want to encourage us as a church. So one of the, something I've, I've heard before is, hey, like there's, there's not like, an ex, like kind of an expected response in the lingo at Restore. Like people kind of just come in and say how their week is going, but like we don't have like, a, like how we process things. There's not like an expected response. And I want to say like that's exactly where I want us to be. Right? As we sit with each other in life, as life happens... 90% of the time, we will not be able to provide answers. If you're a small group leader, or if you're in discipleship with one another, or if you're just talking with a friend, like, and they come to you and say, this was my week, there's a, there's a huge chance that you will have zero ability to say, this is why this happens. Like, here's the silver lining. Like, hang in there, right? And so what the book will do uh, is it brings us to this place of kind of desperateness. Of kind of like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to do. All I can say is, don't call me blessed. God must be against me. But as the story unfolds, something else is going to happen. We're going to be introduced to a new word. And this word is called hesed. Okay, so this, this word shows up uh, a couple of times uh, well, not a couple of times. It actually literally shows up hundreds of times in your Old Testament. And it is always used to describe the character of God. So Exodus uh, 34, 6, uh, when God, sorry, Carly, we're kind of jumping around, but Exodus 34, 6, when God actually, uh, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, remember that story? He's delivered them out of slavery. Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down and finds out the people have already rebelled against God. They've already built another idol. And one of the things that God says in this moment is the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh, the Lord. And he says, I am the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That's the word hesed. It's bolded there. Okay, that word can be translated steadfast love. Some of, your some of your translations do that, steadfast love. Some of your translations will call it unfailing love. Uh, this is my, how I would actually like to interpret it two different ways. I, I would use the word either relentless grace, this like grace that does not stop, it does not yield, it does not quit, it does not give up. It is like goodness that does not, is, is not, and cannot be hindered. Either by our own willful rebellion and rejection of it, or by our simple uh, unwillingness to acknowledge it, it does not stop pursuing us. Relentless grace or loyal love. Steadfast love. So I think many of us, when we, when we think of, of God's love, we very rarely do we use the word loyal. 
but it is the number one way that God describes both his love for us, and it is used thousands of times in your Old Testament to describe God's love. It is loyal to you. Most of us see God's love as sort of accommodating. Like it makes space for us. I'm a hot mess. He loves me. And the way I know he loves me is because he doesn't punish me for it. Right? There's kind of like this, like he tolerates me. But the number one way in your Old Testament, when God reveals himself, the word it is used is hesed. This undying, like completely loyal love. But it doesn't stop with your Old Testament. In your New Testament, in John 1, 14 and 16, John tells us the word became human, speaking of Jesus, and made his home among us. He was full, here it is again, of hesed, unfailing love and faithfulness. The word that he uses is charos. It's a Greek word, but it's the same word that is paired with hesed, the Hebrew word, right? Those, those always go together, but it's the same thing. John says, wait a second, when we see Jesus, we see hesed, loyal love this pursuit of us. And John says, this is God's glory. When we think of Jesus, the glory of Jesus is his hesed. Okay, so sorry, Carly. So now we've got to go back to the hesed family tree slide. Sorry, I know I'm jumping around and making it really hard this morning. Um, she does a great job with all this. So hesed, here's what's going to happen in your story this morning, is that word is going to be used to describe Ruth. Not God, Ruth. It's going to be used three times in the story to describe her character, her actions. Now, what's going to happen as I read the story is your, your translators, and by the way, like, I never want us to be a translator. So I know I'm being hypocritical when I say this because I'm about to be snobby, uh, but like, I never want us to be like a snobby translation church and be like, well, I use the NIV. It's better than all of yours, right? Like, we operate and use all kinds of different translations. However, like, this is not necessarily like any one translation. All of your translations do this in the book of Ruth. And the reason they do this is like, what, what they do is when it's, Hesed is described of Ruth's character, they'll switch the word out to kindness. It's not an inappropriate translation of the word, but it's a softening of it. And the reason they soften it is because they, like the, really the kind of thinking is that they get skittish. This is a word God uses to describe his character. Does that also apply to people? Can this woman show hesed like the God Almighty does? And so they translate it kindness, which is, I think, it softens it, right? Like kindness is what happens when your grandmother makes you cookies. Like not to harp on your grandmothers. Like that's great. Like, right, but like they're, they're, they're like the, the hesed is this like, regardless of what it costs me, I will pursue you. I will give you not what is fair, not what is deserved, but what is better than deserved by you. Like I will pour and give myself out to you. And so as the story progresses, what's going to happen is we're going to see God provide for Mara, bitter Naomi, through the hesed of Ruth. There's a couple of other things that are interesting about the story. Is God's not mentioned very much at all. And so you read most of your Old Testament, God kind of like comes down, he's like, do this, go here, please don't do that. Like he's always kind of like directing and, and revealing. But Ruth is different. 
God is actually relatively strangely absent from the story. Or at least that's the initial reading. But what I want us to do this morning is see is that God's abundant provision is actually there and it is present and it is moving and it is moving through the Hesed of Ruth who is acting with the same kind of character that God acts with, who is loving, unfailing, and steadfast as Ruth, as, as God does. God is absolutely in the midst of this story and he's doing it through this Moabite woman, Ruth. So, so why, or I mentioned she's a Moabite, Okay, so um, she's not actually part of, of God's people, right? So those are the Israelites. Um, basically, I'm going to summarize very quickly here. Uh, God, God as, as creation continues to rebel against God in his steadfast love, he says, I'm going to create something new. And so he creates this new nation, not because they were more moral than everyone else and not because they were more pathetic than anyone else. He picks them because he loves them. The same reason he has called and chosen you. Your morality, good or bad, was not a determining factor in the love and hesed that God pours out upon you. And the reason I say that is, is, is because both of us, where most of us will fall into two camps. We, we kind of fall, a lot of us will fall more into the side, some of us will fall into the side of more like the moral camp. I'm here because I'm a good person. That's why God loves me. And so we spend our entire Christian lives trying to maintain that status because we don't want to lose it. Likewise, some of us are here, I'm, I'm here because I'm a really bad person and that's why God loves me. And now I'm good. The problem is with that is like you'll be also fearful of losing what you feel like God has given you when you don't measure up to his standards. Right? And so part of what we start to see with Hesed is that it's detached from our morality and I really want us to see that. It's detached from our performance. It's detached from how we like behave, good or bad. And so Ruth is a Moabite. Okay, so who are the Moabites? Um, a little bit of a backstory on them. Uh, they basically started, uh, if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham uh, had a relative named Lot uh, who had two daughters. Uh, and this is why I'm so glad we have a kids ministry now because I was never able to do this, say these kind of stories before. But essentially what happens, and like, like your Bible is not as shy as we are sometimes, but essentially what happens uh, is Lot's two daughters realize we don't have any husbands, we don't have any heritage, uh, let's get our dad drunk, and let's go that route. Like, I, I don't know how else to, like, say that. Like, it's in your Bible. You I'm not going to read it this morning, but that's literally what they did. So that word Moab means from the seed of your father. Because, like, every, right, every kid wants to be named after their grandfather slash father, right? Like, that's, this is how, this, how the Moabite nation begins, is through this kind of stuff, right? So the reason I'm, I'm, I want to press this here is because, like, this helps, like, the author's going to mention several times she's from Moab, and so people are going to have an impression of who she is based on her family heritage. We know how your people got started. And she's going to do this. So when she says to Naomi, I will go with you wherever you go, she agrees to go to a group of people who will see her this way. All right, so like, as I'm trying to like, help us see the depth of Ruth's Hesed, I want us to see like, the shame that she's about to like, bear. 
Not only that, but the Moabites as a nation uh, constantly opposed Israel. They didn't help them. And at one point, they tricked one of Israel's own prophets into trying to corrupt the nation of Israel. And so God says to the Israelites, the Moabites are never to enter your assembly to the 10th generation. Don't let them ever in and among your people. And so there's all of this kind of shame, uh, but there's all of this other stuff that God has said, like, here's how you are to interact with the Moabites. And the question I want to ask is this morning, and this is something that I think we do sometimes, is we principalize what God says into this blanket. This is always true of all time, of all people. And I think we, and I can explain more about this if you, if you really want to have a conversation with me about this. But like, there's a way that we principalize and say, this is how it applies always in all time and all people. And yet all of a sudden we see Ruth the Moabite reflecting more of the character of God, the goodness of God, and the hesed of God than anyone else in the land. The book is written at the time of the judges. The author will tell us this as we open the story. The judges uh, were essentially at the moment at which God's people continued to, despite his steadfast love that he showed them, continued to rebel against him. And they continue to push him out. And as they do that, more and more and more, they become more violent and less hospitable. And the book of Judges, which is before the book of Ruth, literally ends with someone in a vulnerable position being cut, like dismembered, cut into pieces, and then sent to all the different tribes among God's people. And so what God's doing here, what the book of Ruth is, is doing is, while God's people are literally dismembering themselves. They're literally hacking themselves into pieces. Ruth the Moabite is showing the hesed and the character and the goodness of God. She has more reflection of who God is than any of these other people. There's another character that we're going to get introduced to uh, this week named Boaz. And Boaz in the story, uh, he's going to be called a redeemer. Uh, so that's the last family slide there, Carly. Um, Boaz is going to be a redeemer. What does that mean? So there's a custom uh, in, 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 in the ancient Israel that if, if, you're, uh, if you were a woman and your husband died, uh, her brother was to marry you. And you're like, well, that, like, what, do I get a choice in that? Um, like neither of them actually do. Uh, and the reason, so I want us to also, this is, remember, this is 3,000 years ago. Okay, so we're, we're reading a very ancient text with a very ancient people. Uh, if you were a woman and you were widowed, your ability to provide for yourself was none. There were no options for you. And so this was a law that was put in place to actually protect vulnerability. Okay, so, so if, and there was even like, and it was the husband, the brother's obligation to do this. If he didn't do this, and we've actually talked about this earlier in the year, uh, like the entire assembly was to like gather around him and remove his sandal. And like from henceforth, like he was to be known as like the one sandaled man from like the one sandaled house. Like there was this actual, like, this is your obligation to protect and care for the vulnerable. And if the brother, if the husband died and he didn't have a brother, it would go to the next relative or the next relative. These people were often called redeemers. This is where we're going to get introduced to Boaz, who's a very distant relative of Elimelech, her father-in-law. He'll come into the story as a redeemer. And what that means is, if he marries Ruth, 
Naomi, we read later in the story that Naomi has land, but if he marries Ruth, he can basically capitalize on the resources that are available to Ruth and Naomi, who are now essentially at this point going to be living as immigrants. And so we're going to read in the story that he'll take notice of her. Okay, so um, I want to point out in the Hebrew here something real quick, because I think we tend to, when we see particularly um, women in the Bible and leadership or character positions, they tend to become, frankly, like they just become, become sexualized. It becomes all about their looks, their attraction, whatever. We're going to notice that Boaz takes notice of Ruth. It is not because he thought she was pretty. Maybe she was or wasn't. The text doesn't tell us like anything about her physical appearance at all. But what he's going to notice is this woman who is laboring in this field under a hot sun, He's going he's to say, I've heard about how you have stuck with your mother-in-law despite the fact that you didn't need to. I have heard of your hesed, is what he's going to say. I've heard of the steadfast loyalty in which you are demonstrating. He's noticing her character. He took notice of her. Not because, like, because she's laboring in the hot sun and she didn't have to. But what he'll do when he notices her is he'll begin to show Hesed. Her Hesed will beget more Hesed. It's contagious. It starts with Ruth, and he sees how she is living, and he says, I'm going to respond like this. This is what grace does. This is what grace does. This is the kind of church that we want to be as a church where hesed begets more hesed, where I give you better than deserved. I give you not what is fair. I give you grace. Like I find ways to pour out my goodness on you. And like Ruth, who reflects the character of God in this story, what we'll begin to see is it begins to spread to the other characters. And it's a spoiler alert, uh, but by the end of the story, what we'll see is all of them uh, end up redeemed. And Mara, who is bitter, is rescued from her bitterness through Hesed. Through the Hesed that Ruth and then later Boaz will show her. Right? When we think of who we are as a church, when we think of how we interact with each other in small groups, um, I care a whole lot less about what theological answers you give each other. Um, and that's not because theology is not important. It is important. But it is hesed that protects our hearts from bitterness. It's hesed that begins to bring redemption. So redemption could mean, redemption means like to come back from. I was in a hard place, and I'm coming back from that into a good place. This is what redemption is. It starts with hesed, and as hesed spreads, redemption is brought about, and that's what is going to happen in this story. Okay, so uh, I've given us enough to think about this morning as we read the story. Um, so what, I, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to ask you just for a second, like put on your like, I forgot, Reading Rainbow used to say something, like, put on your reading caps. Was it, like, there was an imaginary hat you wore. I don't remember, 90s kids, anybody recall? It was either imagination hat or, or reading hat. But, like, put on your, like, imagination hat for just a second. 
my goal here from this point forward, I'm not going to interrupt the story anymore except to point out where the word hesed's being used, is to let the story speak to you. We read it last week. We're going to read the, what we read last week, but we're going to add on more to the story. There's four chapters. So we're going to read the second part. And I want, I want, what I want to do is like I want us to see the hesed of Ruth as it spreads to Boaz. I want us to see the desperation of Naomi. Like, take a second. Like, close your eyes if you need to. The room's well lit. You won't fall asleep. Well, maybe you will today because you lost an hour of sleep. But like, <laughs> ordinarily, you won't fall asleep. Like, take some space to listen to the characters as we see Hesed begin to unfold. I'm going to start in verse 1. Uh, and then I'm going to close the sermon this way. Okay, so I'm going to actually just read the story uh, and I'm going to close the sermon uh, with the story. And my hope is let the story speak for itself uh, as we read it. Starting in verse 1 of Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraelites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other married a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Mylon and Kilian died. They left Naomi alone with her two sons, without her two sons, or her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again, so Naomi and her daughter-in-laws got ready to move to Moab to return to their homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living. And they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's home. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness, your hesed, your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to two other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old again to marry. Even if I, it were possible and I were to get married tonight and your sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth 
clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has come back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replies. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvester. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they were harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at the feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such hesed? She asked, I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard about how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete 
strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. That mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled the entire basket. She carried it back to the town and showed it to her mother-in-law, Ruth, who gave her roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about Boaz, the man in whose field she had worked. The man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi, told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his hesed, his kindness to us, as well as your dead husband. The man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, what, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the high, entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in the other fields, but you will be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through their wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, um, I admit that my life falls so short of Hesed. Um, I'm mostly preoccupied with my own agendas, with justifying myself, with leveraging myself even in the relationships with the people I'm supposed to love the most. Would you help us, Father? Would you help me? Would you help us as a church to show Hesed in our groups and in our discipleship and with our children and our marriages? Father, we admit that we're a people that is primarily preoccupied with ourselves. The idea of faithful steadfast, unbending loyalty is foreign to us. Even though you have loved us this way, we struggle to love each other in this way, and we struggle to love you in this way. So would you teach us? Would you give us hesed for one another? Would you give us the kind of courage and character that Ruth had to reflect who you are to one another by the way that we show Hesed, 
Whether our lives work out so much like Naomi's, we thought we'd go one way and our trajectories turned out very differently. And sometimes we don't hear from you at all. You seem completely absent from our stories. So would you help us? We need you. Just show us how to be your hesed to one another. We love you. Would you help us to love you more? Just show us how to love one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen.